0: So the, the two-dose strategy for our vaccine um, is actually a change. We originally planned a one-dose strategy, and that was really going back to those discussions with the modelers uh, back um, in February, where it looked as if the UK would be struck by a huge first wave of disease and um, that was devastating. Welcome to this BMJ
1: interview. I'm Elizabeth Mahays, clinical news reporter for the BMJ. I've been covering coronavirus for the BMJ since before the pandemic hit our shores, writing about everything from virology and epidemiology to the early stages of vaccine development and now deployment. And it's to vaccines we turn our attention today. Andrew Pollard is director of the Oxford Vaccines Group, who, along with AstraZeneca, have developed a modified adenovirus vaccine for SARS-CoV-2. In this interview, I wanted to talk to him about the development of that vaccine, what he thinks about potential dosing regimes, if he worries about the virus mutating and vaccine escape, and how the university came to make a deal with a commercial company to provide cost price vaccinations for the
0: world. Well, I think right, right at the beginning of the pandemic, I think we we all were just hearing snippets of information from China, and I don't think we anyone initially realized the impact that this was going to have on our lives and For me personally it it was actually traveling to a meeting in France where I was going to talk about our work on typhoid and on the way there at the airport, I shared a taxi with uh, John Edmonds, who's one of the modelers who is. Uh, working uh, with SAGE now in presenting the modeling data uh, around the pandemic. And in that taxi journey, um, we talked about this new virus emerging in China. And he had been looking at the data and uh, had a fairly um, catastrophic view of what was likely to happen to the world uh, from that point. And uh, really, for me, that was an incredibly chilling moment because it was the first moment when I, I realised that our lives were going to change completely during 2020.
1: Wow. And, and so from there and as it started to spread and we kind of got the first case here, the first case in many other countries, um, when did you think this is something I, I'm going to get involved in? And did you think straight away we need a vaccine?
0: Oh, I, I mean, I think absolutely straight away thinking we needed a, a vaccine. And uh, my colleague here in Oxford, Sarah Gilbert, was uh, already working on uh, some of the development um, uh, that's needed to, first of all, test out whether a construct that was made um, uh, against this virus might actually work. And those studies were done in, in animals. And I think when uh, we realized that this virus was spreading into Europe, those, those of us who, who run uh, vaccine research groups here in Oxford got together. And uh, worked out that we needed for something as big as this to, to join up um, across uh, my research group in pediatrics and the um, uh, research groups at the Jenner Institute uh, who work on malaria and TB and other and various viruses as well um, to to work out how we could bring the teams together because the capacity needed to um, to take this on uh, was so enormous and the particular expertise in in my group in apart from design and development of vaccines is also in taking things through to that late stage of development. And that uh, meant that we had particular um, uh, knowledge about how to actually put all the building blocks together that would allow trials right from the first in human um, to where we are today with an authorised product.
1: And can you talk us through what the Oxford vaccine is made of? How do you go about designing something like that? And then from there, how it works?
0: Well, the, the vaccine um, actually, as a, has a back, its backbone, is a common cold virus, an adenovirus, uh, that causes um, infections in chimpanzees. And that particular virus is selected um, to make vaccines out of because it doesn't normally infect humans, so we don't have much natural immunity against that virus, which means you can use it. As a vaccine very easily without it being destroyed by our our immune system and so taking that virus it's been weakened so it can't actually cause infection in humans at all and then the spike protein gene from coronavirus is inserted into it as dna so that when we use this chimpanzee adenovirus in the vaccine it delivers the dna of the coronavirus into our cells. And so in the vaccine, there is no spike protein. There's just a gene for spike protein inside the adenovirus. So when we then inject the adenovirus into our volunteer, uh, the cells of the volunteer take up the adenovirus, convert the DNA into RNA, and then the RNA into spike protein. And then that is expressed by our cells and then our bodies make an immune response against that spike protein. Uh, the RNA vaccines from Moderna and from Pfizer they convert RNA into spike protein, and it's using the cellular machinery in our cells to do it. And the only difference here is that we've got a, a virus to take the DNA into the cells in a very efficient manner, and then that DNA gets converted into RNA and then into spike protein. So they're essentially the end bit of their processing is exactly the same, whether it's an RNA vaccine or a DNA, or a a DNA virus vaccine.
1: And how did you decide that was the way to go? So everyone seems to have focused on the spike protein. Was that something early on that you decided, was it a bit of a gamble, you have to see what works? Or was it, we're pretty sure this is the way to go?
0: Well, we're really sure that this was the right way to go. And I think this has been the great thing in, in some ways about this being a coronavirus, because we know so much about the biology of these viruses. Uh, particularly how to make vaccines against them, because over the last 20 years, we've had two huge outbreaks of coronaviruses. One uh, back in 2002, which was the SARS coronavirus, uh, which uh, had about an 11% mortality, so a really scary virus. And then about eight years ago, the MERS coronavirus, which had 35% mortality. And because those were so horrific and there were around a thousand cases in each, uh, on each occasion, lots of efforts went into making vaccines, which were mostly tested in animals. But we found out from those studies that making immune responses against spike protein could result in protection. And my colleague, Sarah Gilbert, was already working on a MERS coronavirus vaccine uh, just before the pandemic. And so we had everything uh, going around that. And so it was essentially switching the spike protein from MERS coronavirus to the spike protein of SARS coronavirus 2 uh, that was done in order to get the first construct of a vaccine made.
1: There was a good timing really in that. Well, there was already work ongoing.
0: So it was good timing because there was work ongoing which and we knew the biology and we knew the vaccinology that was needed to, to get started. But I think it's also a, a slightly worrying thing. Because if this had been a virus that we didn't know so well, we would have been trying to work out which component of it should be used for making a vaccine. We'd have really been several years behind where we were on this occasion.
1: And this has been talked about a lot at the moment, but how much would the virus need to mutate to make the vaccine ineffective?
0: Well, the the vaccines uh, that that are currently uh, in late stage development or are authorized for use um, use a large part of this spike protein. It's a very big protein. And so the immune responses are against lots of different bits of that protein. And so that means that to completely escape, um, the virus has to mutate quite a lot. And so that may give some advantages um, against um, escape happening in the short term, certainly. And the way that escape happens, as mutants arise at escape from the, the, the vaccine, is when there is a lot of pressure on the virus to change. At this moment, hardly anyone in the world has been vaccinated. And so, and that's it, hardly anyone in the world has had disease, even though it feels like it's been a huge impact. Most people have not had infection yet. And so the virus is not under huge immune selection. It it is making new variants and we're seeing this all the time, but largely that is driven by a new variant which happens to be fitter, perhaps like the one in the southeast of England that arose in December. It transmits better. And so it's taken over the previous variant because it's just better at doing its job. In the future, when lots of people have had disease or have been vaccinated, the virus is going to come under a lot of pressure. And some viruses, when that happens, just can't um, compete against that immunity. And we see that with viruses like measles where if you vaccinate most people we don't have measles outbreaks because the virus um, is not able to mutate to an extent that allows it to survive in the face of human immunity. With this coronavirus we don't know the answer to that question yet and that's why surveillance is going to be critical in the year ahead to make sure that we're not um, in a position where at the point of population immunity the virus escapes. And if it does, we need to know that so that we can redesign vaccines at that time.
1: How is how easy is, would that be to redesign the vaccine if we really had to?
0: Well, I think for, for both the RNA vaccines and the viral vectors, it's a relatively straightforward process because you just have to synthesize a new bit of DNA in our case or RNA in their case, I and mean, then insert that into the the, uh, the new vaccine. Then there's a bit of work, obviously, to do to manufacture the new vaccine, which um, is you no know, reasonably heavy lift but the same processes would be used just you don't have millions of doses available to, to start with so you've got some downtime time to get going and then uh, the second component is that there will uh, almost certainly be some testing whether that's in animals or humans um, in order to show that you can still generate immune responses and then the regulator would have to approve uh, that um, uh, new product.
1: So. Can you use the genetic surveillance that's going on to preempt uh, what's going to happen with the different variants and how effective the vaccine will be against them?
0: Well, at, at this moment in time, uh, the, there are not very many people vaccinated. So uh, the, the virus is throwing up new variants because they are better able to transmit and they work better. Um, but those variants are probably not going to be the important ones uh, for vaccines. But when... Once we reach a point where lots of people are vaccinated or there's uh, population immunity from infection, then at that point, new variants are likely to arise, which may be more problematic. And the the difficulty is if you only use surveillance of what's happening, then you're always um, looking at what's already occurred, the new variants have already occurred. So that's an important component of this, to look at what's happening to monitor that, to test those in the laboratory and see whether they're likely to evade the immune response. But there's another aspect, which is to try and look in advance about what sort of changes might happen in the virus that could then evade immune responses. And that's working with structural biology and with uh, looking at where the, uh, the, the antibodies that we make in response to the vaccine bind onto the surface of the spike protein. And that laboratory-based science is going on very actively in many centres around the world at the moment so that we can be better prepared for understanding what sort of mutants could be a problem.
1: So we've heard that the NIHR are planning to run trials mixing the vaccines, so Oxford first and Pfizer second and vice versa. Can you tell us anything about those those trials?
0: Well, I think they're really important trials to address two things. One is, are there any safety concerns of having Uh, the first dose of our vaccine, the second dose of the final vaccine. And I really don't expect that there will be, one would anticipate from the biology that there shouldn't be any difference from having one dose of each vaccine. Um, And we already know the safety data around those, so I wouldn't be concerned about it. And the second question is whether you get good immune responses. And actually, I think we might see really good immune responses by that combination in the end. Both vaccines are in um, harness our cells to make spike protein, and then we make an immune response against spike protein. So they actually, as a prime and then a boost, are fantastically aligned uh, to uh, to use uh, a mix and match um, vaccine. We need the, to generate the data to show that that's true, but biologically this should work extremely well. And I think, from a general practitioner's perspective. This is ideal because if you don't need to worry about which vaccine it is you're giving it a visit, as long as it's a coronavirus vaccine, we, it's, life is going to be so much easier, particularly if we have su- supply constraints during the year. If if the only thing you've got is an Oxford vaccine and it's a Pfizer recipient, it's much easier if you can just choose either of the vaccines.
1: And I understand it's it's quite normal to do this with vaccines, to, to mix different brands. Is that right?
0: Well, it is, if it's been tested, it's, it's pretty normal um, to do that. Uh, but of course, it's not true with all vaccines that you can do that. Uh, but, but I think just from the biology here, there's no reason why it shouldn't work. But uh, it, the, the data need to be generated to, uh, to inform JCBI who will then pronounce on it. We'll
1: hear a bit more from Andrew in a moment. But first, a message from one of my podcast colleagues. Hi, I'm Nabjotlada, Head of Education for the BMJ and panellist on Deep Breath In, the BMJ's podcast for GPs. In this week's episode, we're also talking about vaccines. TV and radio GP Mark Porter works at one of the first UK practices to get the vaccine and gives us his top tips on how to get 3,000 patients vaccinated in a day. We also have Andrew Pollard answering some questions from GPs. Plus, HIV epidemiologist Julia Marcus discusses the lessons she's learned about the importance of getting to the right people with any intervention. That's this week's episode of Deep Breath In, available wherever you get your podcasts from. So does the Oxford vaccine reduce the risk of hospitalisation, ICU use or death?
0: Well, what we've seen in the trials so far is that once people have made an immune response to the vaccine, uh, which takes about um, a couple of weeks uh, that no one was admitted to hospital um, or got severe disease um, from that point onwards so i think that gives us uh, some optimism uh, that on a larger scale use that the vaccine is able to prevent hospitalization and severe disease and um, but you know we we need to continue to gather data because of course there may be for some people that it's not enough uh, to to have a dose of the vaccine to completely protect them. Some people may not make a response to the vaccine, but so far in the trials that's what we've seen.
1: Looking at the Pfizer trial, there were around 20 times more suspected COVID cases than confirmed. I was wondering if anything like that was seen in the Oxford trials and how the trials differed?
0: Well, there's, there's lots of differences between uh, trials. Uh, there's different countries, different populations different ways of selecting who was in the trial. For example, here in the UK, the vast majority of the people in our trial are healthcare workers and who have a, quite a high exposure to the virus compared with other um, people in the general population, presumably. And, uh, and then we also, part of our studies are in Brazil, which is a very different population, and in South Africa. And there, there are different social circumstances in those different countries as um, as well as, as well as many different ethnicities involved. So, so just on a population, there's differences. Also, the way that uh, the endpoints in the study are measured is different. I mean, we, we are uh, looking at uh, people with uh, very clear symptomatic and, and hospitalized disease and hospitalised disease. Some of the other studies, and um, like you have to go into each, each protocol in great detail to unpick this, but they have slightly different ways that they select people to be in their endpoints. So in other words, those that's considered the case, and which makes it very difficult to compare from, from one study to another exactly what is going on. Um, and uh, I, in, in the end, uh, the, the critical thing is that you have a case definition um, where you select someone and then they have to be positive by PCR. And that that positive by PCR is consistent across studies. That's, that's the way that they're measuring them. But you may include more moral or less milder individuals into that, depending on how you run the study. I think one of the other really interesting differences about our, the UK part of our study is that we're also measuring asymptomatic infection. And so we're taking a swab from the 10,000 people in the UK every week and then looking to see whether they've got asymptomatic infection. We found that's been really interesting because it does two things. One is it picks up the asymptomatic infections, the other is that we're able to pick up how long the symptomatic people in the trial continue to be symptomatic for. And we haven't analysed those results yet, or the viral loads in those individuals. But it's going to be really interesting to see what additional impacts the vaccine has uh, beyond uh, just the symptomatic infection, which is what we've reported so far.
1: In terms of rolling out the vaccine at the moment, so GPs are obviously part of the teams rolling out both vaccines. Supply seems to be their main issue. Do you know what's going on with supply and manufacturing at the moment?
0: Um, I, I don't have the, the details of that. I mean, I mean obviously, it's um, manufacturing. Is, AstraZeneca was is responsible for that and working with government. The process is that you have to obviously make the vaccine, which is being made in real time in batches. The vaccine uh, then uh, gets put into vials. And so that's a separate process, the fill and finish process. And then it needs to be, uh, have various tests on it before it can be released. And those tests are run by the National Institute for Biological Standards and Control. And so we have this uh, this lengthy process that has to be done before you even get to distribution um, and so on. And I know that AstraZeneca, uh, the MHRA and NIBSC and government have been working very closely together uh, to try and make sure there's an hour by hour plan of how as each batch comes off the production line, how that can then go into that system, but I, I don't have the numbers or, or the dates of when things going to be available.
1: Yeah, that's fine. Um, talking about supply, is there a case for a one dose strategy, or alternatively, two half doses? Um, and why is two, dose, two doses the default? It seems to be the default that we just assume we're going to have two doses.
0: Yeah, I, I, I think it's a really good question. So. Uh, So the the two-dose strategy for our vaccine um, is actually a change. We originally planned a one-dose strategy, Mm. and that was really going back to those discussions with the modelers uh, back um, in February, where it looked as if the UK would be struck by a huge first wave of disease um, that was devastating. And the, the, the thinking that I had then was that if you wait for two doses, then the, the speed of transmission that we, we expected and the, the size of the curve would mean that we really would um, have enormous numbers of, of hospitalized people and deaths. Whereas if you got one dose in might be in a much better position um, to, uh, to manage that. And so the original strategy when we set out in our trials was just as a single dose but we had a subgroup where we gave two doses and we found in that group we ended up with much better immune responses, um, so higher levels of these neutralising antibodies, which um, are able to stop the, the virus in its tracks. And so we, with the, uh, the data as it emerged as we went through the trials, uh, we went back to the regulators and agreed that we'd move to a two dose strategy, uh, with the idea that uh, you hopefully can get some protection from the first dose, but the second dose would give better protection, but ha- perhaps also more sus- sustained protection. And so that's the strategy that we've had um, going forwards. As a result of that switching strategy, we had to then manufacture enough doses to give the second dose. And that inevitably led to a delay in having the second dose available. And that's given this really interesting phenomenon in our trial, which wasn't intended at the beginning, where we um, have some people who are vaccinated at a month after the first dose, but some people, because they've been vaccinated before the manufacturing happened, actually had to wait almost three months before they got their second dose. And so we've got this a spectrum of people between four and 12 weeks who are vaccinated. And so the regulator has approved that interval because there's so much data uh, that, that they have over those different intervals. And absolutely fascinatingly, and perhaps predictably, uh, those who have a longer interval actually make much better immune responses after the second dose. And we see that actually with other vaccines, the cervical cancer vaccine that we give to girls. If you uh, give a six or a 12 month interval between the two doses, you get a better response if you do a one month interval. And many of the baby vaccines, the same is is true as well. And why
1: why is that? How does that work?
0: it's, It's almost certainly because the immune response matures after you give a first dose. And, and if you give it long enough to mature, you get a, a very good memory booster response with the second dose. If you have the second dose too early, um, the immune response have, hasn't matured fully. There's a bit of negative feedback, so it doesn't over shoot mark, and you get a much smaller response to the second dose.
1: Yeah, I was looking at the data yesterday and I saw that uh, quite a lot of people were given it between nine and 12 weeks. Um, in the UK study, and that seemed to have a higher efficacy. We, we don't have enough
0: data to have certainty about that at the moment. There's quite a wide confidence intervals, but um, I think it almost certainly will. Um, and then your your question about the uh, the half dose. I mean, there's the half dose has a an advantage of dose sparing, so that could be um, helpful. But the vast majority of the data that we have is around two full doses because that was the original strategy. And so for the regulator, that's the compelling data package. They need a large database in order to approve something. We have a lot more data around that. We do have um, a subset of individuals who had a half dose followed by a full dose, and they also have good protection after the second dose. And so it, it is a strategy that could be contemplated. The downside of it is it's a bit more complicated to deliver if you. Have to for a practitioner to decide is is this the half dose person or full dose person, and and so I think it's and and also we don't have as much information around that strategy, but it certainly seems to work, and the antibody levels suggest it works just as well as two full doses.
1: So, are there more trials ongoing now, or more data that's being collected on these different uh, suggestions for dosing?
0: Well, they, the, the current trials continue. So, uh, I mean, the, the analysis that has led to the authorization of the vaccine was an interim analysis. And so we, we still have, uh, in my trials in, in the UK, Brazil and South Africa, 23,000 people in the trials still being observed. And so we are accumulating more data. And that may be very important because we'll have data on the new variant, and hopefully efficacy against the new variant, both here and in South Africa. And also we will accumulate more data in older adults, which would be um, really helpful to to have that additional information. Um, We don't have any new trials planned um, to look at different regimens here in the UK, uh, but we we are moving on to new trials to evaluate in different age groups, so looking in children. So throughout
1: the pandemic, there've been a lot of calls for more transparency when it comes to vaccine trials. And one of those big things was trial protocols. So Pfizer, Moderna and AstraZeneca released their US trial protocols, I think, back in September, October time, while the trials were still ongoing. Um, and Oxford waited until the phase three results, the interim phase three results were published in The Lancet, as I understand it. Uh, what? Why was that? Why did you wait longer than the other um, trial manufacturers? And was transparency on your mind while the trials were in those early stages?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I think transparency is really uh, absolutely critical, and, <clears throat> and that's why we published our first protocol in July uh, with our first publication, <clears throat> and then the, uh, the the next one uh, with the, uh, the the phase three protocol came with the the next paper, which was the paper in older adults, um, and then um, in in the more recent. Publication on efficacy, we had the protocols for the UK, for Brazil, um, and for South Africa. So we, we, we published the protocols following the normal processes for publication of protocols. And of course, the other thing that's critical is the, the plans for trials have to be registered online um, before you start the trials. And so right back in, I think it would be, would have been in March, possibly maybe been April, but March or April, We published all of our trial and plans um, on the international trial registers um, to make sure that we were being transparent. So I think all the way through, we've we've followed the normal processes. And actually, for our um, studies, we've got five publications on the clinical trials. All the data are out there uh, for people to see. Um, And it is a bit perplexing that there's this constant accusation of lack of transparency when It's actually something at the university that we're absolutely committed to and have been doing um, all the way through. And there there isn't um, a standard process for publishing protocols in the way that that you just suggested. And what we normally do with our um, research projects is actually write a protocol paper. And the BMJ Open is one of the places we usually lodge those. I have to say that in this pandemic, we've just been a bit busy and hadn't focused on publishing a protocol paper as we've gone along and it just said we'll put it in the publications when we get there but um, you know I think it's just the scale of what we've been doing as a, as a small university research group we just couldn't do everything that, that maybe the big pharmaceutical companies could.
1: I actually wanted to come on to that as well um, this idea I wrote a feature a few months ago which is why I was asking about the protocols and one of the people I was quoting said there's a real difference between real transparency and pseudo transparency, you know, just putting out very curated press statements rather than actually, you know, holding briefings and uh, doing, tra- making, being transparent um, to actually reach the public and reach other scientists. So I wondered if if you feel like there's a real difference between Oxford and the pharmaceutical companies in terms of real transparency versus pseudo transparency.
0: Uh, well, that's a bit of a loaded question. <laughs> um, I, I think um, and uh, we, we, we're, we're an open book. I mean, we've, we've been trying to conduct rigorous trials in, you know, in working with regulators um, and with ethics committees in, in the completely standard way that that's supposed to be done. I think one of the confusions, I think with, through journalists particularly, has been that they should know everything that's going on in a trial all the time. And of course, I have an absolute responsibility to protect the interests of people in the trial, the trial participants. And so when people have have been bombarding me with questions about every event that happens in the trial, a lot of that actually does affect real people um, who are people who have signed up to take part in a trial and and be the participants to try and help all of us find a way out of the pandemic. And so, uh, and of course, there's also very strict regulation here in the UK um, because clinical trials are um, enshrined in law. And so if we breach the principles that are there um, in that legal framework, I go to prison. And part of that is protecting the interests of, of our trial participants and not breaching good clinical practice. And so a lot of the, you know, tell us more about these cases that occurred um, in the trial and so on, uh, would actually have been breaching ethical principles and also the law. So it, I think those things have been quite difficult as we've gone along, is to try and maintain integrity of process when people who are not familiar with integrity believe that that's a lack of transparency. And I, I don't know whether I've explained that well to people as we've gone along, but I don't think people would want to listen anyway. But it's, I think it's really important that we continue to follow due process. If at the end of it you haven't done, you do not get an authorised product.
1: This might come on to something else um, I was going to ask, which was how different this process has been compared to previous vaccines you might have worked on. So I I, I agree with you, there has been a lot of um, calling for transparency of things that aren't necessarily allowed to be in the public domain. Um, So I wondered, what's it been like to have the spotlight on you and every kind of small action is scrutinized or um, tried to be You know, everything's making the headlines is really what I'm trying to say. How has that been?
0: Uh, Well, I I think it's a really interesting um, issue. I I mean, I I think about um, going back to uh, March when we started lockdown and uh, everyone was at home. And I remember a moment of feeling quite jealous that people were at home doing their DIY. They're all talking about it and tweeting about what they were doing. And we were just coming doing our day job, but with much longer hours than normal. And to be honest, the year has been like that that in many ways it's not exceptional. Um, I was talking last week on New Year's Day with people in the lab who were in here working and they were, they were saying that over, the, uh, over Christmas that they'd been home and everyone was saying what an amazing thing they were doing. But actually they're doing what they normally do, uh, doing some assays in the laboratory. They were spending hours in the freezer room trying to find the samples that were needed for some assays. And that's just it's mundane. It's what we normally do. It's the day job. And yet you, you step out into the outside world and suddenly realise that everyone's watching you and wants to know, uh, know exactly what you're going to do next and, and why did you do what you did yesterday. But I think in many ways, it has been a completely normal year in, in vaccine development. What's been different about it has been much longer hours and then immense pressure um, on the team because of that external spotlight and on us and this urgency that there is um, in a pandemic. to try to make sure that we do our best in order to deliver as we've gone along.
1: So thinking back to before the pandemic, what work has been done in the UK to allow us to create a vaccine or to allow you to create a vaccine so quickly? Was there a lot of funding that was very important? Are there a lot of um, institutes or was there a lot of resources that you you were glad were in place already before the pandemic struck?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think in, in many ways it, it, it's hard to stand back and look at the achievement of the year. But I think it's worth saying that, um, that if you if you look internationally, there are, there really are not um, academic enterprises which are producing new vaccines in this pandemic. It's it's very much a commercial um, operation because you need that huge um, muscle of big pharma to do it. Um, and I think in many ways for us here in, in the university um we just have happen to have the right coalition of um different expertise and that there is because partly because we've been doing vaccine development um over the uh, for, for my group over the last 30 years and and that um, has put us in an exceptional situation globally to be able to do that but that is because of long-standing investment by academics um here um, in pre- pre- even before me, um, who, who were working on vaccines um, and building up this huge infrastructure, which has been supported by the university over that period of time, um, so that we can access people who know how to do particular assays or uh, to make a vaccine. We've got our own manufacturing facility, which allowed us to do the, the first in man study um, with the vaccine. So, having all that, that um, investment over several decades made it possible. A critical component of that. Um, was investment uh, from uh, the uh, the government through the department of health in 2015 in response to the Ebola outbreak to try to improve the UK capacity to respond to future um, infectious threats um, to to our health security. and that was a program over five years I've, I've been involved in making several different vaccines one of one of which was for plague, which is the black Death. And uh, there's a big problem in some parts of the world still today. And so that vaccine was about to start its first human trials at the, st- at the start of this year. But obviously, we're a bit delayed with that at the moment. So uh, that that programme from the government, which has been coordinated by Professor Chris Whitty, who we all now know extremely well, but he's been working on that from the Department of Health uh, for a number of years now. And that has put a lot of infrastructure into the UK. To be able to respond um, to outbreaks and it was the program that was also helping to fund uh, some of the work on coronavirus already um, and other viruses here. So that, that has been really important. I think there's investment here in this institution, um, investigators who have an interest and expertise in vaccines, but also uh, I think some vision five years ago from government that's, that's helped to fund this, uh, the, 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 sort of the, the work that's, that's come before. And then, of course, the next thing which was really important here in the pandemic was was the government stepped in to make sure the funding was available for vaccine development during the last twelve months, and that that's been absolutely critical because one of the biggest problems in vaccine development is that you keep stopping whilst you write the next grant to uh, to find the funding for the next phase of the research, and we haven't had to, to have that obstacle this year.
1: That is something, um, we often talk about how vaccine trials normally take 10 years, and that's how long a vaccine would normally take to develop, um, and a lot of researchers have been saying but but the reason we've been able to do it so quickly this year isn't because we're cutting corners, it's because we don't have to keep stopping. So is, is that something that we might take away from this post-pandemic, that we can get a vaccine quite quickly if you put the money there and if you put the resources there?
0: I I think that's right, um, that it it, it demonstrates what can be done. But of course, that is focusing everyone's energies um, onto one topic. But of course, in, in health, we really don't want that in the future. We want to make sure that both the attention of regulators and ethics committees and funding is spread around the very many different aspects of health, even though I might like it if it was all on vaccines. So I think the reality is different, but it shows what could be done. And I think it does make you think perhaps there's a different structure that could be put around programmes, perhaps so that they have more end-to-end funding rather than the stop-start. And you can milestone it, but you don't want to have the types of delays that we normally see. Uh, I mean, I think the, the other thing is just the normal process that takes time. It, for an academic, it is all about the next level of grant funding and waiting a year for it to come. But even in industry, it's a slow process because um, there's there's a lot of Um, regulation within the companies as well as with regulators that means that there's there's a lot of downtime uh, between each stage of development and most vaccines I've been involved in that have been licensed have taken around 10 to 15 years uh, from the concept through to the licensed product and so that uh, that long period of time um, is partly hardwired into the system and it would be good to unpick some of those aspects.
1: Knowing what you know now, is there anything you would have done differently?
0: Um, I, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting question. I, I suppose that the difficulty is, is that in, in, a, in the pandemic, uh, we're, we're trying to make decisions as we go along based on the data as it emerges. Um, and I don't think that even though we might like to have done some things differently, <laughs> that we could have done, because you, you until you have the information, you can't make the decisions. Um, So I, I think overall, there's the very few things that we could have done dramatically differently um, as we've gone along. We've had, I think, fantastic um support from all of the different institutions who are involved in, in, in this. Uh, I, I think we could be better set up um in the UK than we are. And we are one of the best countries in, in terms of being able to stand up multiple trial sites um so we have in the uk 19 trial sites helping run run our trials and they were set up in about three weeks so they've done an amazing set up but they didn't have um dedicated infrastructure already in place it required a lot of um, work to get that up and running and it worked quite well because we started the trials during lockdown and so there was lots of space there were empty clinics there, there was staff who to be deployed into the trials. And of course, as you get into the next stages, the follow-up period or the second doses of vaccines, lockdown had ended by then. And so the the space, uh, the sports halls where some people were doing their trials out of, and the NHS staff were redeployed back to their normal jobs. And so all of that put huge pressure on the ability to deliver the trials at that point. So I think there is definitely a, a question about um, perhaps supporting the national infrastructure around research more than it is at the moment and of course the question is what would those people do in peacetime if uh, if that was the case and i i do think it's a huge credit to the whole NHS system that we could deploy a national study with three weeks notice in 19 sites because that would be pretty difficult in most systems in the world where you just couldn't do something centrally in a centralized way to to get things off the ground.
1: Yeah, yeah, three weeks—that's that's very impressive. So, is it more about just having the infrastructure there for when you need it? Having the kind of I don't know protocols, having an idea of who would run these things when they are needed.
0: I mean, I think it's uh, there's two aspects. One is that um, you know, having as, as in the US, there are multiple vaccine centres already established in the US, um, where they are doing vaccine development, vaccine research and evaluation, laboratory work on testing immune responses, and we we have very little of that in the UK. And so, having more of that established and well funded and running, um, so that that capacity is there on the uh, the research side, and then there's the clinical delivery side, where I think they're one of the real stresses for everyone was with being able to find the staff, find the space, um, and the training that's required to stand up a large-scale study. And I think if we were doing more of this day-to-day, um, covering different aspects, uh, we could do even more than we were able to do more um,
1: My last question is just, what What are you doing next? I, well, your trials are still going on. Are you going to get a break anytime soon?
0: Well, it, it's, it's... a. It, uh, it's the right question, but it is actually quite difficult to answer because it's been so intense for, for a year that it's almost impossible to think about, what would I do? Uh, because uh, the, the whole world, uh, you know, many hours of each day, up until very late at night, is all about this, this work and this vaccine. And particularly working across different time zones has, uh, has not helped with that. Um, so actually thinking about what to do next is, is difficult. Of course we have a big research program here which has all been stalled because of the pandemic and so we've got lots of really important questions around new vaccines that we want to reignite because they there are lots of other health conditions which um, we we want to make vaccines uh, against and uh, that's uh, something i'm I'm looking forward to to getting back to as a pediatrician a lot of my focus is on vaccines for children And of course one of the the good things about this pandemic is that children have been relatively speaking unaffected and uh, so the, it has been less of a, uh, an issue from the infection, although clearly the impact on children's lives from the pandemic is huge. So uh, I, I, I do hope that I can get back to focusing on vaccines for children in the year in ahead.
1: That was Andrew Pollard, director of the Oxford Vaccines Group, talking about the development of the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. Coming up soon, one of my colleagues has interviewed Stephen Thomas, Chief of Infectious Diseases at Upstate Medical University and the lead investigator on the Pfizer vaccine. They're discussing topics such as the choice of outcomes for trials. So subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen so you don't miss out on that. I'm Elizabeth Mahays, clinical reporter for the BMJ